Bible to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. And uh, we're talking about, going to continue the series. Today we're going to talk about the value of restoration. I just want to kind of give you an overview of Matthew chapter 18. I know we spent some time in Luke 17. Uh, and we're going we're to be today and next week uh, for sure in Matthew 18. But I want to kind of break Matthew 18 down for you just um, so you kind of have a, a perspective, a whole view of what's happening here in Matthew 18. So if we take Matthew chapter 18 and we look at verses 1 through 7, we see that Christ is, is telling us that we need to have a childlike, or we could say a Christ-like humility. We need to be moldable, we need to be teachable, we need to be shapeable, as opposed to being stiff-necked and becoming an offense to others. So Jesus, in these verses, says, brings this little child, sets him in the midst, and says, I tell you, unless you humble yourself as this little child, um, you will not, you can't be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself as this little child, Jesus said, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It seemed like a contradiction. It seemed that it, it wouldn't make sense naturally that a little child would be the greatest because we think of greatness as in terms of strength, or we think of greatness in terms of wealth, or in terms of power, or in terms of influence. Well, the kingdom is contrary to that. The kingdom doesn't operate the way the world system does. So Jesus says, if you want to be great, become like this little child. Unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Then from verses 7 to 10, Jesus talks about the cost of restoration for the offender. And he says, it's better for you to cut off your hand, cut off your foot, pluck out your eye, if your eye is causing you to be an offense, if your eye is causing you to sin. And it's not the, the thought here is not just some sin that you personally are participating in and God is offended with you. We don't, do you understand that you don't have to participate in sinful behavior for God to be offended with you because we are by nature born in sin and death and we are an offense to God from the moment we're born because we're born separated from Him because we're born in sin and death. So it's not our sinful behavior that makes us an offense to God. It's our nature. It's our sinful nature. This is why Jesus says in John 3, 3, you must be born again. I need to be born again and I need to come to possess another nature, another life. A nature that's not my own, a life that's not my own. And so in these verses, he's talking about the cost of restoration for the offender. He said, it's better for you, it's better for you to humble yourself and for it to cost you a hand, a foot. Now, this doesn't really mean a lot to us, perhaps, uh, other than the thought of losing a hand or a foot or an eye. You guys want to know what losing an eye is about? Sunette can tell you all about that. She's got some pictures she can show you of her little doggy that had an eyeball pop out. Yeah. Don't worry, they put it back in. Okay? You didn't know you could do that, right? 
I didn't either. But to these Jews, according to the law that God gave to Moses, you didn't want to be maimed. You didn't want to be, have these things happen to you. Uh, the, the descendants of Aaron, even though Aaron was the, he was the priest, his descendants, if his descendants were maimed in any way, if they were, had a, one leg longer than another, if they had uh, some issue physically, lost an arm, lost a member, they were disqualified from serving in the priesthood because the maimed and the lame could not come and serve in the temple. So understanding what Jesus is saying here from that point of view takes it to a whole different level other than just the thought of not having an arm or a a hand or a foot or something. This would affect the way God would view you, see you, and whether you were acceptable to Him from this mindset. So we see Jesus is teaching something really radical here. He's not teaching against the law. Again, he's pointing out something. Our offense is not whether we have lost a hand or a foot, whether we're physically maimed. The offense starts in our heart. It's a heart issue. It's better for you to be maimed outwardly and have a right heart than have everything going for you on the outside and have a rotten heart. And so, verses 7 through 10 talk about the cost of restoration for the offender. It's dealing with the offender here. Verses 11 through 14, this is where we're going to be today, talk about the value of restoration. How God values and why He values restoration the way He does. For the offended and for the offender. Next week, we're going to look at verses 15 through 17, and we're going to look at the process of restoration. Restoration for the offended, restoration for the offender. And then in verses 18 through 22, we see Jesus dealing with the authority that has been given for the purpose of restoration of reconciliation, and of discipline. So we can take these sections of scriptures in and of themselves and and think they mean one thing, but in reality, Jesus is teaching, he's teaching something here that's all connected. There's continuity here in the way he is presenting this in this teaching. He doesn't say, for instance, not to get ahead of myself, But he doesn't say, for instance, in Matthew 18, um, let's look at one of these. When he says, for instance, to his disciples, um, whatever you, verse 18, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. We've taken that scripture and we turn it into something that was never meant to be. That's not your license to kill. That's not your license to go out and, and wreak havoc on the enemy. Listen. Christ has already wreaked havoc on the enemy. He has already led them away. He has already made an open show of them, humiliating them. This is what Colossians teaches us. Do you you have authority? Yes, you have authority. 
This authority that Jesus is talking about here is the authority of the church. Who was it that had the power to forgive sins? Why did the, remember when Jesus healed a guy? And then after he healed him, he says, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees got all bent out of shape. And they said, only God has the authority to forgive sins. Who are you to say that you forgive this man's sins? Well, here we have something else here that is really radical in Jesus' day. Jesus is talking about forgiveness. He's talking about offenses. When a brother sins against you, what you are to do, you are to forgive him. And he's telling these apostles, he says, you have the authority. He said, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And he gets through telling them in these verses that basically, he says, if there is one who refuses to hear even the church, then he is to be counted as a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth should be bound in heaven. He's talking about the, the authority the church has to bring discipline. But the point of discipline is not punishment. The point of discipline is to bring what? To bring restoration. That's what God wants to bring. We won't look at it in depth, but it'll be a scripture that I'll give you next week in second in a first Corinthians, and it deals also with in second Corinthians when the the unrepentant brother wouldn't stop his sexual immorality and they put him out of the church. Well, today that's just like unthinkable. But you know what happened? That brother was restored. He was brought back and he repented of his sin and he was restored to the body and restored to fellowship. And the point of putting him out wasn't to punish him necessarily. The hope in doing that, the hope of that discipline was to bring restoration. And so... I just want to kind of break that down for you. As you read those scriptures, don't read those scriptures in just sections in and of themselves. Understand the context of what Jesus is teaching here. It's just like the whole thing about the mulberry bush being pulled up and cast into the sea. That's not so that you can name and claim and get whatever you want if you have enough faith. It's talking about the faith that enabled you to be forgiven is the same faith that now enables you to forgive. And that wasn't a faith you worked up and you made real big so that God could forgive you. No, it was that mustard seed faith that enabled God to be able to forgive you because it was that mustard seed faith that brought you into Christ. It wasn't you had some great big huge amount of faith and you came to Christ. No, it was that mustard seed faith that brought you to Christ. And enabled you to be forgiven, it's that same faith that it will enable. And if you think, if you think praying a mulberry tree from the ground into the ocean is a big deal, it's nothing compared to God forgiving our sin and making a way where there was no way. And that's really what God wants us to come to see. He wants us to understand what a big deal it was when He forgave us. And if we don't understand our own sinfulness and our condition before we were redeemed, then we will mistakenly believe that, that causing a mulberry tree to be plucked up out of the ground and planted into the ocean or a mountain moved is a bigger deal than our salvation. And it is in no way, shape, or form. It pales in comparison to what God did when He moved our sin 
he took away our sin, caused us to be accepted in the beloved. Amen. All right, let's go there. Matthew 18, verse 11. Sorry, I'm having issues with my wire again. Matthew 18, verse 11. Okay, I'm going to read uh, these verses, 11 through 14. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Now that word for tells us that this is a continuation of thought here, okay? So what was he talking about? Well, he was talking about it's better to enter into life with one eye, with one hand, with one foot than it is to, to be cast into hell whole with everything. He's talking about being an offense to these little ones. Verse 11, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. How how many of you have ever lost anything? Well, we've all lost stuff, right? So, if you've ever lost something and it was something near and dear to you, the implication here, the understanding here, who is Jesus? He's the good shepherd. This isn't a hireling, this is the shepherd. So when... When his one sheep goes astray because he is the good shepherd, because he's not a hireling, that that sheep is near to him. It's dear to him. And this is why he leaves the 99 and he goes to pursue the one. So if you've ever lost anything that's near to you or dear to you that means something to you, even if you've got 10 others just like it, you, you don't find it and say, man, I'm so happy I still have 10 just like it. No, you're, you're excited because you found the one that you lost. This is what Jesus is saying. He rejoices more over the one that was lost when he finds it than the 99 that remain. It doesn't mean he doesn't love the 99 or it doesn't mean that he loves the 99 less. What are we talking about? We're talking about restoration. This is what Jesus is talking about in the context of these verses, is restoration. He's trying to help us understand the value of restoration here. So the parable of the lost sheep illustrates the heart of Christ. When it comes to who? When it comes to those little ones, this is who he's talking about, these little ones. Who are these little ones? Well, he had this little child. This is still what's going on. It's, he, he's still teaching the same thing. This child is still in the midst of them. And remember, he started out, he said, you have to be converted as this little child if you want to see the kingdom of heaven. And anyone who will humble himself as this little child, that is the one that is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Anyone who offends one of these little ones, better that a millstone be tied around your neck and dropped in the ocean than that you offend one of these little ones. So this is still the context of what he's talking about here. And so in this parable... When it comes to to these little ones, these are the most vulnerable in their faith. These are the ones that, just like this little child that Jesus has brought out there. This is the picture. It has less to do with age 
than it has to do with attitude, okay? That was a real little child. And this is why children are important for many, many reasons. This is why we need to be very conscious of our children. Parents, that begins with you. If you're not conscious of your children, if you're not engaged with your children, if you're not concerned about your own children, why should a government school be concerned about them? Why should a teacher on a government payroll from a government school be more concerned about your children than you are? Though I will submit to you, there are teachers, I believe, that are more concerned about their students than maybe the very parents of those students are are concerned. And that's, that's a travesty. Well, where do we fix that? In Congress? No. <laughs> we won't fix that in Congress. Well, we just need to spend more money, Pastor Jeff. That'll fix it. No, nope, that won't fix it either. Spend all the money you want. That ain't going to fix it. Well, where do we fix that? Well, we fix it in the home. We fix it in the home. And we're studying through Titus right now in the Sunday morning Bible study. And in Titus, Paul teaches uh, Timothy. He's writing to Timothy, a pastor on the island of Crete. And Paul is writing, instructing Titus. Titus, this is how you are to instruct the people. This is what families are supposed to look like. Not just the family unit in the home, but this, the family of God. Because the, the family unit is really a picture of the family of God, just like marriage, individual marriages are a picture of our relationship with Christ. It's all connected. It's all integrated. We want to segregate everything, and God is saying, no, I've created everything to be integrated. The rain that's been falling and overflowing, and you realize it's that same rain that's going to cause your fruit trees to produce fruit. It's that same rain that's going to cause those blooms to come upon your fruit trees. And those blooms are going to turn into fruit that you're going to eat or that you're going to buy at the grocery store. Everything's integrated. Everything is a system that God created to work together. Family is the same way. The family of God is the same way. And this is what Jesus is teaching us. This is what the Scripture is teaching us. This is about restoration. This is about wholeness. This is about the health of families, the health of the family of God. So notice that Christ refers to the one sheep as having gone astray. You see that? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray. So he refers to the one as the one that has gone astray. Those that have gone astray, they can be offended or they can be offender because Jesus isn't really talking about sheep here. He's talking about offense. Don't lose. Don't lose sight of the subject here, okay? Jesus didn't switch from going to talking about little children and millstones and stuff like that. Now he's talking about sheep. Boy, Jesus just teaches about all kinds of things, doesn't he? I mean, we're learning agriculture. We're learning... No, he's teaching about one thing here. But he's using word pictures to help us understand and get the point. And so this one sheep that's gone astray, 
Those gone astray, they can be the offended or they can be the offended. We can stumble and we can cause others to stumble. But Jesus, in talking about these little ones, he takes the most vulnerable among us and he uses it as an example. It's the immature, the little ones among us, most vulnerable to stumbling, and we are not to be the cause of their stumbling. It's amazing to me, oftentimes, you know, uh, I'm kind of a news junkie, so I like to listen to the news, and you always hear these stories, you know, where something happens and you know, all of a sudden, parents get up in arms and they're storming the school because someone offended their kid or someone said something to their kid and might be justified, might not be. But, but the point is, a lot of times we, we get up in arms about things when stuff happens. And the question is, for us, when we're talking about these little ones, and we're talking about causing them to stumble, and something happens, my question is not what happened there, but, but what happened long before this situation occurred. How are we loving our children? Let's start with the children in our homes. How are we loving the children in our homes? Parents, how are you loving your children? Grandparents, how are you loving your grandchildren? How are you loving your adult children? The world is watching. How are we modeling love to the world around us? We're reading a book in our life group called Finally, Finally Alive, and, and I have not read anything more than the introduction, but I loved the introduction of this book. And the introduction of this book kind of is railing on how not just our culture, but, but even the Christian culture uses the term born again. And we classify, we do the research. For instance, the Barna Group does this research, and they say born-again Christians. So we say the divorce rate among born-again Christians is the same as out in the world. Uh, the rate of uh, girls having children out of wedlock is the same among born-again Christians as it is out in the world, or the, all kinds of things. You know, people who would say that they would prefer not to have black neighbors, but they profess to be born-again Christians, is higher than other, you know, uh, groups within the Christian community. And, and the point is, we're perverting this term, because the term born-again means that something radical has happened to us. If we've been born again, there is a radical transformation that has occurred in our life. Now, we're reading through Leviticus right now in the mornings, and, uh, and it was real interesting. In Leviticus, the law was when you plant a fruit tree, the fruit off that fruit tree is considered uncircumcised for the first three years. And you're not to, you're not to harvest it You're not to eat it until the fifth year. Meaning the fruit is uncircumcised means you don't even touch the fruit. I thought that was kind of interesting. 
So when we're born again, when we're radically transformed, the point is not that we become instantly perfect, because we don't. Well, how do we understand what happens when we're born again? Well, look at nature. God created nature and put it all around us so that we could understand these things properly. I mean, number one, if I'm born again, what has fundamentally changed? My nature has changed. Not my behavior, my nature. So I was a lemon tree, now I'm an apple tree. I won't produce lemons anymore. I'm only going to produce apples now because that's who I am by nature. Is it reasonable for me to expect that the very first year I'm going to get loads of apples off my apple tree? Not only is it not reasonable for me to expect that, God even set a law up that helps us understand a process. Who is the Lord of the process? He is. Who is the one that determines how your trees produce? The creator of the tree is. So when he recreated you, when he caused you to be born again, he's the one that is Lord over how the fruit's going to come. But one thing we cannot question is whether the fruit will come. How the fruit comes, the timing of the fruit, the quantity of the fruit may all be different for different trees, but we cannot question whether an apple tree is going to produce apples. We will never say, you know, I'm just waiting to see whether that apple tree is going to make a lemon or not. We just don't do that because we know apple trees don't make lemons. They only make apples. Now, we might stand there and say, now I wonder how many apples I'm going to get off my apple tree this season. Now, that's a legitimate question. But whether we're going to get apples or not, that's not a question. So the point of what Jesus is saying here and the point of of talking about being born again and the point of understanding these terms correctly is not to say, now that you're born again, you've got to be perfect. That's not the point. But the point is this. If we truly are born again, there should be a difference between those who are truly born again and those who just say they are born again. There should be a true difference between those who call themselves Christians versus those who are truly in Christ. I am convinced that our churches are full of people who call themselves Christian because we live in a Christian culture, or you grew up in a Christian tradition, but just because you call yourself Christian does not make you Christian. We can call the lemon tree an apple tree all day long, but just because we call it an apple tree will never make it an apple tree. It has to be created or recreated an apple tree. And then we'll all wait and see how the fruit comes, when, what quantity. But we know that as it matures and as it grows, there is no question the fruit will come. Why? Because the root is good. Because the soil is good. And our Father in heaven is the vine dresser who is glorified by its much fruitfulness. He'll make the fruit come. It's what apple trees, it's what grapevines, it's what they do. Parents, children, all of us, as children of God, how we live our lives, these things that are coming out of our lives, they matter. 
The one who has sinned against another has certainly gone astray. Listen, if I commit a sin against you, it's fair to say that I have strayed from, I didn't say I've lost my salvation, but if I, if I walked over to Brian, bless his heart, just a great guy, if I walked over to Brian, just, just cold cocked him and just knocked him out, I think it would be fair to say that Pastor Jeff has gone astray. Why did Pastor Jeff walk over there and just knock Brian out? Something's not right with him, right? You would, it would be fair to say something's not right with me if I did that, right? I have somehow strayed from the path of righteousness. We can say that would not be righteous behavior, would it? I, I've just committed offense against my brother. I need to do something to make that right. Doesn't mean I've lost my salvation. Listen, if every week, well, you guys wouldn't be here if every week I walked out there and cold cocked somebody. <laughs> Y'all would just stop coming, right? I ain't going to that church. I ain't going to get, I'm not going to get hit. That guy's crazy. If that was my behavior consistently, you know what you guys would do? You guys would begin to question whether I really am who I confess to be, wouldn't you? And rightly so. But in a moment of weakness or in a moment of stress, if something happens in our lives and we commit a sin against our brother, what do we do? Well, the Bible tells us what to do. We need to understand that God values. We could say that, that if I did that, in a sense, I've gone astray. So God's heart, God's heart, is to restore him to the fold and to restore them to fellowship. Who? The offender as well as the offended. Because if I walked over there and, and hit Brian, Brian's response could be, though he would have a right to be righteously angry with me. Now after, after his righteous anger his response could take him to a place where he has now become offender too, right? Have you ever been, who's ever been wronged by somebody? You might have been justified in your reaction to the wrong. Listen, if we hold on to that wrong, we can be, go from being offend, offended to offender if in, if in my heart I am murdering my brother. Because I refuse to get my heart right. And I use his offense as the justification to what? To keep murdering him. No. The Bible says that we can't do that. We can't do that. So God's heart is to restore offender as well as offended. And so we're commanded to seek restoration of the offender and of the offended. Because that is the heart of the good shepherd. And so these little ones represent not only the most vulnerable, the most moldable, the most shapeable among us, and it's not just age, it's, I, I would venture to say there is a, there is a huge level of, of immaturity, something going on, if, 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 depending on how I react to certain things. I, you, can, you can be in Christ for many, many years and, and 
act and react immaturely, right? I do it all the time. I'll just be honest with you. Sometimes I let my emotions get the best of me, and it might just be for a moment, and I have to remind myself, you know, that's just really not very mature of you to react that way or to think that way. And we catch ourselves, right? We examine our heart. Man, when something happens to us and we react, immediately there should be an examination of our heart. I say, come on, Jeff, is that the way you really want to handle that situation? And I have to say, no, because that's, that's just not right. That's not the way Christ would handle it. That's not way, the way the Scripture teaches me to handle it. It's not. So we can do the right action with the wrong heart and be in sin and be in offense. We can receive an action with the wrong heart and take up an offense that was not intended. And so we understand that we affect people's lives constantly. Do you understand that? Do you realize that? You're out in the world. You're out. I mean, your actions affect people constantly. In your family, parents, your actions affect your children constantly. Your actions are communicating love whether you realize it or not. Fathers, if you're deaf to your children's cry, if your child is constantly trying to get your attention and you're too busy, you're too preoccupied with a video game or your work or whatever it is, and your child can't get your attention, you're communicating to them love. It's just not in a good way. Because what you're really communicating is, I don't love you. I don't value you. Because I don't even hear you. I don't even see you. Mothers, it's the same way. So what we do is important. How we interact with one another is important. This is why we should be mindful of our actions and our attitudes. Jesus commands us to check ourselves before we help our brother remove the speck from his own eye. Our attitudes, our actions, and our communication, or our lack of communication, speaks volumes. Sometimes it's not what you say, sometimes it's what you don't say that is speaking louder than anything you could say. So these things matter greatly. Because we don't live in a vacuum. And what we do has a ripple effect. Pun or no pun intended. I don't care. (laughs) It's the truth. Okay? Our actions affect unseen others. We were, me and Spencer were coming in the other morning. It was early. It was like before 7 o'clock. And, you know, Spencer worked at Gemini for a a, a while. And the the day shift starts at 7 o'clock. Because I used to drop Spencer off at work, you know, before 7. So we're coming in, and we're driving down the road, and all of a sudden Spencer goes, this, this yellow Jeep passes us, and Spencer goes, that's Sherry, or that's Cherry. He said she works at Gemini. He said she kept telling me she was going to come visit the church, but she hadn't visited yet. So we're just sitting there driving, and Cherry, I have no idea who Cherry is, and her little yellow Jeep is just right up in front of us, and then I start Singing, Cherry, you know, I don't know, it just made me think of that song, you know, and I won't, I won't torture you guys or anything like that, but, uh, and then it just hit me, and, and, and I said, Spencer, I said, just think, here we are driving right next to her, we're talking about her, she has no clue that we even know who she is. 
I said, do you realize how many times that happens? I said, I think about me, you know, I mean, I, I do have kind of a, a unique haircut. And um, so I think about, you know, people say, oh, there's that pastor of Christ Fellowship. You know, I'd probably go to church here if he had some hair or if he'd shave his uh, uh, facial hair. Or, I, I mean, we just don't know. People see us, people hear us. We affect people, unseen people. We don't even know that we are. We need to be mindful of that. And if that's true for the unseen, we look at our nation and we wonder why we're in such a mess, why there is so much dysfunction in the family. Why? Because families are dysfunctional. Why are they dysfunctional? Because because we don't know how to communicate, because we don't have, I bring it back to the doorstep of the church. We're not doing what the Bible commands us to do. Why? Because it's politically incorrect. You read Titus 2, that is pure, unadulterated political incorrectness. And there are churches that just will not teach those things today. Well, I'm not going to teach women that they should obey their husbands. That's degrading. Why? The Bible does. The Bible teaches that. Well, I'm not going to teach women that they should be homemakers. That's degrading. Why? The Bible does. or fathers, or husbands, everything that the Scripture teaches you. Men, love your wives the way Christ loved the church. Hey, I'm a man. We watched Open Range yesterday. What did he say? How's this going to work if you don't do what I tell you? (laughs) I always tell men, she'll do what you tell her if she knows you love her. You have a problem with obeying Christ? Well, don't answer that question. Because some of us do. Because we're fearful. You know why? Because we haven't been made perfect in love. Because we really don't have a revelation of God's complete love for us. If we did, we wouldn't be fearful. We would not be fearful to do the things the Scripture commands us to do. We wouldn't be. So God does not will that even one of these little ones should perish. We are to examine our heart and seek reconciliation and restoration as He has commanded us to do. When someone sins against us, we are commanded to go to that person alone and tell them they have offended us. We are commanded to do this for the purpose of achieving restoration. Well, what if I go and I hurt their feelings or I offend them? That's irrelevant. I mean, first you need to really ask yourself, did they really sin against me or am I just being oversensitive and immature? But if they sinned against you, the Bible commands you to do certain things. It doesn't leave you an option. And the reason it doesn't leave you an option is because God values the flock. Yes, He values the one, but He values the one because why? Because He values the flock. And this is how God keeps the flock safe and secure and healthy and together. So we're either going to obey the Bible or we're not going to obey the Bible. We're going to create our own rules and our own way of doing things, and that's where we get into trouble. And this is why we see the level of dysfunction and destruction in our society today. Because the church has made a decision to accept some things and reject other things. 
because they're just not culturally relevant. Well, that would offend them. Better to offend them. Better, better to go ahead and lop off the hand, the foot, pluck the eye out, and, and them realize than to give them the illusion that everything's okay when it's really not. So when someone sins against us, we're commanded to, to do certain things. If we have wrong attitudes toward another, we're to examine our heart and we're to obey the Scripture. So if we have been wronged by a person, we are commanded to go to them first. If we have taken up an offense for any reason, we must examine ourselves to see if we have pride, if we have resentment, if we have any other sinful attitude that might be out there. Unforgiveness, bitterness. And we need to repent of those things and we need to deal with the situation the way the Scripture commands us to. If we know we have committed sin against another, we should seek their forgiveness. We should go and seek restoration. This is what Jesus commands. We're not to allow destructive attitudes to remain unchecked. We often do this for the sake of not hurting people's feelings. But when, when, when wrong attitudes are unchecked, when they're not dealt with, I promise you there's more than feelings that are just hurt eventually. Much better to go and work those things out than for it to become something that is much more destructive at a wider scale. We're to seek restoration for the sake of unity and for the health of the greater body. In seeking and finding restoration and unity with one another, we should also find God's joy. Look, look, what, look what Jesus says here. Verse 13, And if he should find it, Assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99. We'll understand this greater as we go next week into the, into the following verses. When Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go to him alone. And if he hears you, you have gained your brother. There should be rejoicing at that point. At whatever point when restoration takes place, there should be rejoicing. Jesus says when he finds that sheep, there is more rejoicing over that one that has gone astray than over the 99 that, that did not. When we seek and we find restoration, when we restore unity, when we restore fellowship, there should also be a joy and a rejoicing that we find in that. We should rejoice more over that one that is restored than the 99 that did not go astray. As God's people, we must realize the value of restoration. And it's going to only be with courage and with obedience that you will, that I will, that any of us will go out and seek that. Because it is an intimidating thing to do. But you see, what Jesus was teaching is this is the culture of the kingdom. This is the way the kingdom operates. If you have sinned against me and I won't come to you, I am doing you a disservice. 
Because I'm not giving you the opportunity to be restored. And if I don't give you the opportunity to be be restored, there remains a brokenness of fellowship there. And Jesus says that's not good. Now I might think, gosh, I don't want to go to them because, you know, what if, what if, what if, what if what? What if my brother hears me and I've regained my brother? Then it's party time. Then it's time to rejoice. Because I'm not, I'm not commanded to go to you to make myself feel better. I'm not commanded to go to you to bring an accusation against you. I'm not commanded to go to you to prove that I'm right and you're wrong. The only reason that we're commanded to go ultimately is to restore, to bring restoration, to bring a healing to what was broken, to restore fellowship. It's really not it's really not about us anyways, it's about him because in that restoration of fellowship, God is glorified because there's the fruit. Listen, if the branch is separated from the vine, the branch can't bear fruit. When our fellowship is broken, there's there's no fruit that can come from our fellowship and our relationship because there's a brokenness that exists there. God wants to heal the brokenness so that life can flow and be restored. But it takes courage, it takes obedience. But along with that, there is rejoicing that we're to find. There is a rejoicing. We're to celebrate the reality of that restoration. And we're to do that for the sake of the church. And we're to do that for the glory of God. Because the sake of the church and the condition of the church is a direct reflection of the glory of God. I heard someone say, you can't serve the church and serve God at the same time. And I thought, there is a fool who does not even understand what he's talking about. And this is someone who's supposed to know what they're talking about or pretends to know what they're talking about. You can't separate God from the church because the church is the body of Christ. And Christ is in the Father and the Father is in Christ and we're in Christ, which means we're in the Father, which means there is a unity here of life. The church and God are not opposing forces that are competing for people's attention and resources. That's the way this person was teaching it. It's a fundamental misunderstanding and disconnect at the very foundational levels when people begin to teach things like that. This is what's gotten us into trouble in the church. Because we're not properly discerning the Scripture. We're not rightly dividing the word of truth. And when we rightly divide the word of truth, we see the value that God places on His body, on His people, in His church. And He wants us to understand that same value. He wants us to comprehend and see that same value. And that value 
should motivate us, even drive us to do whatever it takes to bring restoration when there is brokenness. To swallow our pride, to humble ourselves. This is what Jesus said, unless you are willing to become like one of these little children. Listen, if you're puffed up in pride, you're not going to do that. If it's your way or the highway, that ain't going to happen. You know whose way it is? It's his way because he is the way. And this is what we submit to. This is what we live by. This is what has got to be returned to our culture. If the church doesn't start doing this, if the church doesn't start changing the culture in the church, we can pass all the laws. We can elect Republicans, Democrats, communists. I don't care what label they go by. Nothing will matter. Because it's not going to change from Washington until it changes in your living room, in your kitchen, in your bedroom, in your house, and in God's house. In your house, whether you like it or not, Christian, your house is a direct reflection of God's house. And God's house is a direct reflection of your house. It's time to get the house in order. It's time to get the house in order. And until we are willing to have the courage and the obedience to do that, man, we're going to have a mess. We're going to have a mess in our hands. And we can put all the eye candy we want out there. We can teach all the watered-down, compromised messages we want. We might draw a big crowd, but it is not going to make a difference. But when we see and we teach people that Jesus is the greatest treasure we help them begin to understand that, if we're willing to take them by the hand and walk with them. Listen, some people are victims of of things that they have absolutely no control over because some people have just made horrible choices. The church has got to be willing to take people like that by the hand and walk with them and help them. I can't ever take the place of someone's real father, but I can be a father. And I should never try to take the place of someone's real father or their mother or their sister or their brother. But I can be those things to somebody. And I can walk with them. And as I walk with them, I can point them. What did the very last look? And I'm I'm doing pretty good. It's not, I've got two minutes. I want to remind you what the very Last verse of the Old Testament says. Malachi 4.6 And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. You know what happens when the hearts of children are not turned to their fathers and the hearts of fathers are not turned to their children? There is a curse that comes upon the earth. Can you see it? Can you see it today? This is the message of the gospel. This is what the church has got to be about. Listen, I don't become the substitute for someone's father, but I can be a father figure to them, but but I should be turning their heart to the father, to their father, and ultimately to who? Their father in heaven. And they will love their earthly father 
as they come to know and discover the love of the Heavenly Father. And they will be able to forgive their earthly fathers and their earthly mothers who maybe were never in their lives as they come to know the love and the acceptance and the forgiveness of the Heavenly Father. Two wrongs don't make a right. And we've got to take the responsibility and put it right back where it squarely should be. It begins in the home, but that's not separated from the church. Because we are the family of God. And we have the power to bring restoration. Not just in our silly little, what do you call them? Little uh, disagreements we may get into. I'm talking about real restoration. I'm talking about at the very foundational levels. The church can be an agent for restoration in the home among fathers and mothers, among husbands and wives and sisters and brothers, parents and children. This is what God wants. Christ didn't just talk about it. He died to bring it to pass. Amen? Amen? You believe it, church? Can we live it? It's it's not going to start here. It's going to start in you choosing to live it right where you are. The person that comes to your mind right now that has wronged you, can you forgive them regardless of how great the offense might have been? Can you forgive them? I didn't say forget. I said forgive. Can you trust God for the grace that He has extended to you, that He would give you the grace to extend to them. The forgiveness He's extended to you, can you trust God that, that as you have received His forgiveness, He will give you the grace to extend that forgiveness to that person. Parents, if you'll ask, if you'll pray this earnest prayer, and you'll really ask God, God, have I been... Have I been the parent that you wanted me to be for my child? Now listen, I'm not talking about self-condemnation because you can go there and God doesn't want you to go there. But dad, if if you find yourself working all the time and you never have time to be able to come home and sit down and have a meal with your family, if you're so preoccupied with other things that your kid can't get your attention long enough to talk to you about something that's happened in their day, if you have no clue what's going on in the lives of your children, something's not right. And you might say, I love you every night when you go to bed, but, but that's going to be meaningless compared to all the rest of the time that you don't even know they exist. I don't say that to condemn anybody, but I do say that to challenge everybody. Whether you're a father, a mother, whoever you are, a pawpaw, a Gigi, (laughs) big brothers, big sisters. Some of the most annoying people on earth are little brothers and little sisters. But can you understand how much your little brother or little sister looks up to you and, and would even idolize you 
Can you, can you understand the love God has for you and can you give that same love to that annoying little brother or sister? Let's all stand. Can we come to know the value of restoration? In the, our families, in the family of God. I said I wanted to do this, I want to pray for God.